All right, we're going to get back into our routine, and I actually really love routine, and I hope that uh, our study is in the book of 2 Corinthians. So go ahead and open your Bibles, 2 Corinthians. We are in chapter number 5 as we just systematically step through every word, every verse, every passage of Scripture as we study this book of the Bible. As you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let me, let me just set it up with a story. You know, every kid remembers the first time that his parents let him stay home alone without a babysitter, right? I mean, he's so excited, and he's finally grown up enough to take care of himself, and I mean, at least for a few hours. And, uh, you know, his dad makes it clear to him, look, we're just going to be gone for a few hours. We're going to be home, like, right at 10 o'clock. His parents know that there's the potential for him getting in some trouble, so they give him stuff to do. You got to clean up your room. You got to straighten up the kitchen, the dishes a little bit, and get that taken care of. And so they go off on their way, and as soon as that kid's on his own for the first time, he's just having a blast, man. He's going to raid the fridge. He's going to watch movies he's not supposed to watch. He's going to jump up and down on the beds. He's going to do whatever he's going to do, and then lo and behold, he loses track of time. About 9.45, he's like, oh, man, I haven't cleaned anything and dad's coming home. Well, that's the picture, y'all, of our life in Laodicea. It really is. We, we've, been, we've been on our own for a while, and we've been having a lot of fun with our increased goods that we didn't work to obtain. And now here we are in 2020, and... Like that kid, we realize, oh man, it's 9.45 and the Lord's going to be here in like 15 minutes. So 2 Corinthians, as we've been studying it, is the book that's written to teach us about the ministry and, and the minister, you as the minister of Jesus Christ. And every chapter had kind of its own theme, and so... Chapter 1 was all about suffering, and chapter 2 was all about forgiveness, and chapter 3 was about criticism. And the last chapter 4, we talked a lot about transparency. Well, chapter 5, where we're at today, is actually all about judgment. It's all about judgment. It's looking forward to this event called the judgment seat of Christ, which occurs right after the rapture of the church. That is the judgment of the Christian's works that he has done in the body after the point of salvation. This is not the judgment of your sins. If you're saved, that was put on Jesus Christ on Calvary. But after your salvation, then you are not saved by works, but you are saved to work. And God's going to judge those works, whether they were done in the flesh or in the spirit. And I'm just going to say that the Christian's judgment of works, that coming day of the judgment seat of Christ at least for me and I think for a lot of people, is arguably the greatest single motivation for you to stay on the straight and narrow, for you to do what it is you're supposed to do to serve the Lord now because our day of reckoning is coming. It is coming. Paul, interestingly, starts off chapter number 5 with a discussion about the tabernacle. Now, you remember the tabernacle, right? I mean, this last year we went through the study in the book of Numbers and 
That tabernacle is that tent in the wilderness that Israel had. They towed it around with them. It, it served as the place where they would interact with God. And that's what the tabernacle really is. It simply is a tent. It's a temporary dwelling place. Until ultimately, under King Solomon, right, Israel finally built a permanent temple to replace the tabernacle. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, um, it is the only time that the Apostle Paul, in all of his writings, and he is the Apostle to the Gentile church, in all of Paul's writings, this is the only passage where you find the word tabernacle show up in Paul's writings. It's interesting. So I've decided to give today's message the title, The Christian in the Tabernacle. The Christian in the Tabernacle. And you say, wait a minute, isn't that tabernacle just for the Jews? And isn't the church distinct and separate from the Jews? Good job. Yes, indeed, that's true. Galatians 3.28 makes it very clear that when you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creature. You are no longer a Jew or a Gentile. You're a son of God. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. But... That's true. While that's true, that Old Testament tabernacle, that tent that they toted around in the wilderness, was something exclusively Jewish in its context. At the same time, the tabernacle is a picture of our body. And that's something I want you to understand. And so we'll go through it really quickly here together as a setup for our study together. Now, that tabernacle was set up with three separate parts, and that shouldn't surprise us. And so the, the outer part was called the court. And that outer court... Well, that refers to our body. That's a picture and a type of our body, meaning our flesh, right? It's, it's the flesh where the sin dwells in our life, the source of sin. And, and the first thing that you would see when you would enter that court in the tabernacle is this large brazen altar. And the brazen altar was the altar of sacrifice where the animals would be sacrificed for sin, the sin offering and the trespass offerings. And, and it was just, a, it was just a, a big brass box with flames burning out of it, a, a picture of hell where every man deserves to go. And then the next item as you go past that altar is there's a brass laver, and the brass laver is just a great big wash pot. And that would be the place where the priest would then wash himself before he would enter into the next area of the tabernacle. That, that cleansing then representing a picture of our salvation. Then you go into the next section which was called the holy place. And the holy place represents our soul. And our soul is the real us. It's who we really are on the inside of this body looking out through the eye holes. The, the soul is the real you. And inside the holy place, it's interesting that there were three pieces of furniture. We're not studying all this today. I'm just going to mention it briefly. And so on the left-hand side, as you entered in, and, and, and you're going from east to west, if you look at the orientation, so it would be on the south side, along the edge of the tent, there was the candlestick. And the candlestick represented God's power. It was the thing that illuminated that area. That area would have been all covered in animal skins all the way around. It would have been very dark. The light came from the candles on the candlestick. And so as a result, we find that that's a representation of the Holy Spirit of God. 
On the right-hand side, on the north wall, would have been a table, and that table was called the table of showbread. And the table of showbread is going to rep be a representation of God's provision, and it's going to be a representation of His Word. And there were supposed to be 12 loaves of bread and 12 tribes, but interestingly, those 12 loaves were arranged six and six. And it's really a picture of the Word of God because in your Bible you have 66 books in your Bible. And if you're going to see to be able to get God's provision, you need to be able to see because of the illumination of the candlestick, the Holy Spirit, showing you God's Word. And then right in front of you was the altar of incense, which represents the prayers of the saints of God's people. As that incense is burned and that smoke goes upward, God said that would be a sweet-smelling savor unto him. So this is our soul. This is our beginning to interact with God in this way. But then there's yet another compartment. When you go behind that final veil, it's called the most holy place, and it represents our spirit. Because in this element, in this little room, in this area that compares to our spirit, we see God's actual presence as represented by the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant where the high priest Aaron would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement and God would literally come down and commune with Aaron at that time and speak with him directly. And in our reborn spirits, we have direct access to God through the Spirit now. We don't need a veil. We don't need a, the Ark. We don't need any of those things. God's very presence is present in you in the very centermost part of your being, that most holy place. Now this analogy to the tabernacle to our bodies is what Paul's going to use in chapter 5. What is the association between the Christian and the tabernacle? You see, one day we're going to leave our physical bodies behind. What's next? What can we expect? Well, that's what chapter 5 is all about. So I'm just going to read the first four verses. You can follow along. We'll pray and we'll get into our outline. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house, made not, made, a house not made excuse me, with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Let's pray together. I think this is going to be an encouraging day for you going through this section of Scripture. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we are humbled and grateful for the truth of your word and how you lay it out so clearly. And as we study it appropriately, as we divide it rightly, as we allow your word to define itself by comparing the scriptures with the scriptures, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate that showbread into our hearts and our lives, and that these prayers, our thoughts, our communication with you would be a sweet-smelling savor, and that your very presence would be made manifest, and you would teach each and every one of us the exact thing that we need to hear from you today. Lord, there's so many of us here. There's so many listening, and everybody's got their own situation. But with one word preached, your spirit can make multiple application, and I pray you would do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the first thing that we're going to see is, and this is the first point in your outline, is that we have rest. This association with the Christian in the tabernacle, we have rest. And this is verse number one. It says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now let's go back to that picture, that that literal Old Testament tabernacle for a second that was this temporary dwelling place of God with his people Israel. Because that literal tent in the wilderness, well, that was on earth, it was physical, and it was temporary. So all that you read and and the references to the tabernacle from Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy that just over and over and over and over again describing the tabernacle and its function and the ways that they went in and out of it. Well, we find out by then looking forward into the book of Hebrews that that literal earthly physical tabernacle was a temporary foreshadowing of a more permanent spiritual eternal tabernacle in heaven. For example, in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 2, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man so he's not talking about the earthly tabernacle there's a heavenly tabernacle and Jesus Christ is the minister of that sanctuary and it's the true eternal heavenly spiritual tabernacle of which the earthly one with the three compartments was just a picture a foreshadowing Hebrews 9 is all about this Uh, We're going to jump down to Hebrews 9, starting in verse number 8. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all, that would be the most holy place, and what it pictures, was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle, the earthly one, was still yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, so that earthly one was just a figure, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So even the high priest and the priests of that time, all of the things that they did to obey the law was still not enough to perfect and to completely cleanse the conscience. Why? Verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and cardinal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come in high priest of good things to come by a greater and a more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, the exact same phrase used by Paul in 1, 2 Corinthians 5.1, a more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered into He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So that Old Testament tabernacle, those Old Testament sacrifices, they were literally what God desired, and obeying that was literally what the children of Israel were to do, to have their sins atoned for for a while. But they can never be completely and totally washed away until the Lamb of God came, was slain, and His blood was shed. And then when He ascended up on high, He literally poured His blood on the mercy seat in the true tabernacle, which is in heaven, ultimately providing eternal and complete 
total forever salvation for us. Something the Old Testament law could never possibly have done. So that tabernacle is the picture Paul uses when he makes the comparison. So similarly then, our body, as it says in verse number 1, this tabernacle of our earthly body is just a physical and temporary dwelling place of God. Amen. It's a foreshadowing of the spiritual and permanent body that we'll get after this one is dissolved. It says that it's not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And the reason why we have rest, right, is because it starts off by saying, we know. Not we guess, not hope so. It's not that we wonder. It's not that we wish really hard for. No, it says that we know that when this old body dies, we have an eternal one waiting for us. And that brings peace. And that brings rest. You know what that is? That's eternal security. That's lesson number two in your personal discipleship lesson book for those of you that have done that. A true born-again believer has the guaranteed promise of eternal life. You say you believe in that once saved, always saved thing? Well, I mean, if that's what the Bible teaches, yes, absolutely. Well, what about the guy? Well, I don't care about the guy. The Word of God is very clear. If you have legitimately been born anew, that is a one-way process that can't go backwards again. You didn't do anything to earn it. You can't do anything to lose it. You are eternally, if you are legitimately born again, you have to go to heaven whether you like it or not. You can't get out of it. It's eternal security. And that's what we see in verse number one. We know that when this life is gone, that we have and house of God. We know that. And just from some cross-references in the book of... This is all through the New Testament, especially the Pauline epistles. Just looking in 2 Corinthians a week or so ago, in 2 Corinthians 4.14, he says basically the same thing. Notice 2 Corinthians 4.14. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. There's no maybes, there's no wondering, there's no, hey, I don't know, there's no, if you hold on tight and endure to the end, there's no, if you don't do the really bad sins. Since he rose, you will rise. You could look forward next week, we'll get to verse number 8, but it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we are confident, I say, and willing, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Once you have this assurance, you're kind of in a dilemma. You're kind of thinking, well, that's going to be way better. I mean, I'm not only confident, but I'm willing. Like, I kind of, I kind of want to go and be a part of that thing, you know. Now, let me just tell you. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, I'm confident and willing rather to be absent from the body. I mean, only a nut would say something like that. Unless that nut 
was 100% certain of what waited for him, then it's just reasonable, right? Jesus said it this way, John 14, let not your heart be troubled. In other words, be at rest. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, oh yeah, I just said I was doing that. I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. I'm going to take care of it. It will happen. Be at peace. Be at rest. This is going to happen. So if you just look and break down some of the terms that Jesus used, I love that he says, my father's house. Well, that's what Paul calls the household of God. That's, that's really all the believers of all ages. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22 talks about that. Now, therefore, you're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. That's my father's house. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple. Isn't that interesting? Kind of like a tabernacle. But that one's permanent, right? So it's a temple. It's not a tabernacle anymore. The temporary one's a tabernacle. In whom ye also are builded together for, and here it is, an habitation of God through the Spirit. Because that's what a tabernacle is. It's a temporary dwelling place for God. And the temple would be the permanent cash equivalent. He says, in my father's house are many mansions. Well, I mean, let's just make this super simple. I'm a simple guy. A mansion is a building. A mansion is a house. Oh, it's a really cool house. It's a really big house. It's a really nice house. It's the house you dream about when you watch HGTV. Only that's not enough. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5, 1 says, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Many mansions. So that's why Paul told the Corinthians that they needed to learn to see the spiritual, right? That was the last verse of chapter number 4, right? Where it says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen physically are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We need to learn to see things, right, with the eyes of faith. In other words, just literally believing what God says. If God says it, you believe it. And by believing what he says, even though you can't see it yet physically, you know it's true. You are seeing the eternal with the eyes of faith. Well, when you do that in this context of this subject... Well, then you know that your future is secure. Your salvation guarantees your glorification. And when you can see that, when you can really see that, you rest. I mean, if God is for me, who can stand against me? Right? You have peace. You have the assurance of the promise of God. He will do what he said. Amen. 
So the Christian in the tabernacle has rest. Number two, the Christian in the tabernacle, well, we now desire rewards. And we're going to look at verses 2 and 3. For in this, what's the in this? In this tabernacle, that's the context, right? In this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven, if so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. So in this tabernacle we groan, and it is literally defined right in that verse as earnest desire. It is that earnest, legitimate, now that I see, now that I understand the rest of the eternal security, I have this earnest desire, this internal groaning, right, to get to that new, glorified, sinless, spiritual state for my life. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die, well, that's gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. If you're just asking for me, Lord, if you're just asking me for me, and I get to pick, am I going to continue down this earthly life with pain and tears and suffering and heartache? Or am I just going to say, take me home to that glory now? That's what I want. That's what Paul's saying. But I get it. Staying here, he goes on in that chapter, is more needful for you. I continue to minister. I can help other people. I'm willing to do that. That's all fine. I'm not racing to that finish line. God will take care of it in his timing. The point is, deep down, it's his desire to depart. And that's what he says in verse number 2, right? That's how he started off. We groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. So this house, this new frame that we will inhabit, okay, in a, in a heavenly eternal sense, it's, it's referred to now as being clothed upon, right? In other words, it's, it's a covering. And as we'll see getting into this now, it clothes or a covering cover your nakedness. Praise the Lord. So we're studying the Bible, and one of the rules of Bible study is the law of first mention. The law of first mention, we're going to go back to the very first time we find the word naked in the Bible to understand what he's really talking about. And the first mention of the word naked literally just means without a covering. We're going to find that nakedness is always associated with shame in the Scriptures. The very first mention is in Genesis chapter 2. And verse 25, where it says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and it says, and they were not ashamed. Of course, they were not ashamed because they had not sinned yet. But from this point, once they sin in chapter 3 going forward, there's nothing but shame associated with nakedness. Because otherwise, nakedness always brings shame. And it brings with it just the innate understanding, the natural understanding that you need a covering. You need a covering. So after the sin, right, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 7, we read this, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. In other words, immediately they knew, oh no, I'm naked, I need a covering. 
I need to get myself some kind of a covering. But the fig leaves were the wrong covering. They weren't acceptable to the Lord. And so the Lord comes down and he's like, hey, what are you doing? Verse number 10. I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid, Adam said, because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? How would you even know unless you did something you shouldn't have done? So is it a surprise? You could view nakedness however you want to in the context. The, the issue is Adam is now ashamed of himself because he blew it. We can see this all through the scriptures. I just gave you one reference because this kind of statement repeats itself over and over again in the Bible. Exodus 32 25, when Moses saw that the people were naked, this is the time when he comes down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments and Aaron and the golden calf and all the crazy stuff. They were dancing naked. Okay, so Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. God is very faithful throughout. When he talks about nakedness, he talks about shame over and over and over again. So everybody knows. Look, everybody knows. This is like... You don't need to come to church to learn this. Everybody knows that it's shameful to be naked. And if some idiot exposes himself publicly, well, we would say he ought to be ashamed. He might not be smart enough to be ashamed, but he ought to be. Now, not all of you are old enough to remember, but some of you are old enough to remember that, I don't know, some decades ago, there was this weird phenomenon where there were some guys, they called them streakers. Remember that? And these weirdos would take all their clothes off and like run across a football field. Or they'd run across some public area, right? And they just thought it was weird. That was funny. Well, listen, I'm going to tell you something. Even when that was a deal, that guy knew it was a shame to be naked. That's why he was running. <laughs> I mean, if you're not ashamed, why don't you just walk? Well, the first mention, going back to Bible study, of God clothing someone, well, that's God then stepped in and clothes Adam and Eve's nakedness immediately after sin. We're still back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 21. It says, unto Adam also and to his wife did notice the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. So God provides the covering. Sin brings shame. Over and over and over again. Sin brings shame. And that can be pictured, if you will, as nakedness before the Lord. And you need a covering. You need a covering. And your covering, doctrinally, your covering is a manifestation of righteousness. That's what it is. It's a manifestation of righteousness. And when sin enters into your life, righteousness is out the window. So there's two applications of this idea of the covering being associated with righteousness. The first one we're going to look at is a doctrinal application, and that's Christ's righteousness in you. That's your house which is from heaven, right? That's your spiritual building of God. That's the body that you will receive to function in a heavenly realm. You get that just by being saved. Just by getting to the point in your life where you 
recognize that you're a sinner. You recognize that your end is like that brazen altar. It's flames of fire for your sin. But you repent of that sin like at that brass laver and you become cleansed because of Christ's righteousness. And you cry out to him to forgive you of your sins and you ask him to come into your heart and life and give you the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And when that transaction takes place, a lot of things happen. But the most important thing, doctrinally before the holy, righteous, heavenly Father, is that Christ's righteousness is immediately applied to your account. And that is eternally secure. That could not go away, even if you are the the laziest, no good Christian that ever lived. Christ's righteousness guarantees a house from God, eternal in the heavens, not made with hands, to clothe your otherwise nothingness before him. That's Christ's righteousness. That's the application of the manifestation of Christ's righteousness. In a physical realm like the earth right now, we need a physical body to house our real selves, which is our soul, because we need a physical body to interact with a physical world. Your five senses interact with a physical world. You need a physical body to do that. But we're living forever. We'll shed the body someday. We're living forever, and we're going to get a spiritual body that will enable us to interact in a spiritual realm. Well, that's because of Christ's righteousness. That has nothing to do with you and anything you do. Christ's righteousness covers you and leaves you without shame before him. But that's not the only application of this principle, and this is where we need to camp out for a minute, because there's a practical application, and that's our righteousness. You see, it says in verse number two, in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. That's Christ's righteousness. But it's very interesting in verse number three. We have all this assurance. We have the assurance of our salvation, eternal security. We have all this assurance in verses one and two. But in verse number three, it says, if so be. Well, If so be, if so be is conditional. If so be is not certain. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. That's a conditional statement. This is certainly not speaking of your eternal security in this case. In this case, it appears that there is some condition in which the born-again believer could possibly find himself naked or uncovered or ashamed in the millennium. You see, Paul reinforces this in other places. We just study the scripture. We let them interpret themselves. Romans 8, 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Here's that phrase, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. This is, in Romans 8, 17, this is not a commentary on you losing your salvation. It's the same thing we see in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. It's a faithful saying, if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. That's your eternal security. Verse 12, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. That's conditional. 
If we deny him, he will also deny us. You see, there's a guy losing his salvation. No, he's not losing his salvation. He's, if you deny him by not serving him because you're too carnal and selfish, then he will deny you some of the rewards we are now speaking of with this other clothing. That's what he's talking about. You can be uncovered and ashamed although you enter into the millennium. goes on in verse 13, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. You're eternally secure. You're going to get in. And in these verses, you have all the elements. You live with him because of Christ's righteousness, but you reign with him only if you have your own righteousness. You have to have both applications. And friends, this practical application of our righteousness and how we live out our Christian life, well, that leads up to weeks to come when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ. Our righteousness and how we live out our Christianity is a particular problem for Laodicea. So Jesus writes that letter to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and the last of which is Laodicea, which pictures the last period of the church age, the time in which we're living now, right before the rapture. And here's the Lord's testimony of that church, starting in verse 17. Because thou sayest, Jesus is quoting the church now, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And he says, and you don't even know your real spiritual condition and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind. And say it with me. Naked. That's Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, 3. If so be. So Jesus, thank the Lord, gives us a way out. He tells us what we're supposed to do so that that doesn't happen. Verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the, here it is again, the shame of thy nakedness, they go together, do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. You see, the Laodicean church is declared spiritually naked before the Lord. And in order to correct that condition, there's something you must do. This has nothing to do with your salvation. There's something you must do. And you know what? It's going to cost you something. Because Jesus said, I counsel thee to buy of me. It's available. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. You want to get that white raiment so that the shame of your nakedness doesn't appear? You better go to the Lord. It's going to cost you something. So back in our text in verse number 3, Paul indicates that there could be a condition in which the Christian, although clothed upon with a new spiritual house, will lack additional robes of righteousness, and therefore still find himself in a condition of shame before the Lord, all due to his lack of righteous living here and now. We see that by cross-referencing the scriptures. Revelation 19, this is the literal second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 7 and 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, 
clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of Christ. No, it's not what it says. It's the righteousness of the saints. It's your righteousness. And those robes that can be given, well, those are earned rewards. There, we desire rewards, right? So your life down here in this tabernacle, in effect, is you sewing yourself a suit of clothes for your spiritual body. And how nice your clothes will be, well, that depends on what you do down here for the Lord. Now, my wife always dresses real nice. She always presents herself well. She always looks beautiful and puts forth the identity that how you look matters. I struggle a bit with that. (laughs) But she's a much better reminder about how we look and how we are clothed makes a difference if you're looking at the picture towards eternity. Well, this is where the aspect of the judgment seat of Christ comes in for the Christian. And we'll talk more about that in weeks to come. But he's going to reward us when we serve him faithfully. And just like Tony preached the first night of the conference, like the children of Israel when they were leaving Egypt in Exodus 12, God told them to go and borrow from the people gold and silver and raiment because you're going to need it. So we have rest, we desire rewards, and our last point finally is we await release. We await release, verse number four, for we that are in this tabernacle do groan again, this time being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Once again, we find ourselves groaning And in this case, it's the application of being burdened, heavy laden, carrying a load. So the burden of this earthly life is mortality. That's what it is. That mortality might be swallowed up of life. Mortality. Earthly life. Death and hospital beds. Second law of thermodynamics. Everything runs down. Everything gets harder. Everything breaks. So remember what Paul said back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, kind of a little review since we took a little break for a while. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 12, where he said, kind of explaining this situation, right? We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. And he sets up this paradox of parallelism where the physical application of your life is rough, but the spiritual benefit of ministry is worth it. That mortality might be, listen, we're groaning, we're burdened here that eventually mortality, everything dying slowly, 
will be swallowed up of life. And there'll be nothing but life. Can you imagine? No more sickness. No more pain. No more scars. No more medication. No more treatments. No more aches. No more sorrows. No more glasses. No more hearing aids. The longer you live, the older you get, the more you want to get out of this broken down body. Paul says in Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Listen, we desire to be delivered because we know that that marks the end of this earthly life of pain and suffering. Mortality is swallowed up of life. But until then, we don't just sit around and moan about it. I mean, what the heck? We persevere, right? We don't quit. And when you get older and the pains of your physical body grow, you don't just stop serving the Lord and hand it off to the youngsters, let them have a go at it, I'll just sit back here and watch. No, you, you're really not afforded that in the New Testament. I'm sorry. We persevere. That's what we're supposed to do. So 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, for which cause we faint not. All those things that are these paradoxes in our life and our body, we, it doesn't matter. We're not quitting. We're not fainting. But though our outward man perish, and it is, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For, and Paul calls it, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 70 years, if by reason of strength, fourscore years. Light, momentary affliction, right? Worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. If so be, being clothed, we shall not be found naked. You see, burdens come in various types in the Scriptures. Some can be carried by others, and, well, some burdens can't. And we see that laid out for us in Galatians chapter 6 in the first few verses where it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one, in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Interesting, verse number two, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Verse five, for every man shall bear his own burden. Wait a minute. Bear ye one another's burdens. Every man will bear his own burden. What, what's that? Well, really, he's just looking at it in two different ways, like he does in so many places in the Scripture. A, a brother overtaken in a fault, overburdened, right, because of some sin, needs help. If you can help him, go help him. That's performing ministry. That's the theme of 2 Corinthians. But in the effort of performing your ministry, at the end of the day, you will stand before the Lord proving your ministry, right? 
based on what you've done in the body since salvation, you stand or fall before the Lord. That's the judgment seat of Christ. Nobody can do that for you. There's no substitutes. There's no subcontracts. You can't just write a check and pay somebody to do your spiritual bidding for you. You're going to stand up and serve the Lord or you're not. In that context, you will bear your own burden. That's your burden. If you want the fine linen, the righteousness of the saints, you bear your own burden. You know, you could say that 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 presents how to find certainty and uncertainty, couldn't you? We live in a crazy world and everything's breaking down, but there's some things we can be sure about, aren't there? And as we draw closer to the end, and as we draw closer to the soon departure of the church of Jesus Christ at the rapture and to be followed then by the judgment seat of Christ, well, I, I think we should keep in mind the attitude that Paul had when he approached his soon departure. That's in 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse number 5. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and here it is, and the time of my departure is at hand. Now Paul's departure was via physical death. For a lot of us, our departure may not include physical death. The trumpet may sound, he may call your name and come up hither and boom, we're out. That's our departure. So there's some things we need to keep in mind. Watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. That's how you make full proof of your ministry. That's how you bear your own burden. That's how you prove your own ministry. Paul says, I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a reward, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. That's the judgment seat of Christ. That's the time in which you will be rewarded crowns for the work that you've done in the body. He's going to give me that that day because I know I've done what he's asked me to do, Paul said. Oh, by the way, not to me only, but to also unto all them that love is appearing. You love is appearing. You love not your own life unto the death. You're willing to stand. You're willing to prove your own work. You're going to perform your ministry. You're going to prove your ministry. You're going to bear other people's burdens. You're going to not faint. You're going to not quit. You're going to continue on. If so be that you will not be found unclothed and ashamed for 1,000 years in a millennial kingdom. Think with me for just a second and I'm done. We are all making, if you've, if you've received Christ as your Savior, you are making it in there. Yay! But God, if anything, He's just, He's righteous, we might say He's fair. You slug it out, you suffer, you sacrifice, you serve others continually to the sacrifice of your own benefit and your own pleasure. And you stand before the Lord and some other slug receives Jesus Christ as his Savior and lives for himself the entire time. And he stands before the Lord and you just think that immediately in the snap of a finger, everybody's equal and perfect forever at the exact same level. Friends, you are not reading the same Bible I'm reading. Because the millennium is not eternity. The millennium is just the next dispensation of time. 
And for that 1,000 years, whether or not you get to reign, how you even appear in your new glorified form, it is possible that you could appear glorified with no responsibility because he who's faithful in a little will be faithful in much. And if you've not been faithful in a little, and you'll be ashamed. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he bore your shame. And you know what he wants from you? Bear his shame now. Bear his reproach now. Because, listen, y'all, seriously, it's just good math. Bear it now 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And rejoice reigning with Christ unashamed for a thousand. Or be a carnal good-for-nothing slug. And live for yourself now. Live it up, Johnny. You know, do the best you can. But the day of reckoning is coming. And, oh, if you're genuinely born again, you're, you're housed with Christ's righteousness. Oh, you know, it's better to just be a doorman in the house of the Lord. Oh, come on. And while you're standing there naked for a thousand years holding the door for everybody else, I'm just using the words of Scripture. See how much fun it is then. See how much fun it is then. Are you ready to be offered? I mean, really, this is the application. We're done. Have you made full proof of your ministry? Will there be crowns laid up for you? Because you know what, y'all? The Lord will be back in like 15 minutes. But you know what? If you hurry, you can still get the house cleaned up. Still get the house cleaned up. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take this word and you would speak to our hearts and that each and every one of us would find the exact application that we need. Lord Jesus, if there's anybody in this room that has never surrendered their heart and their life to you in salvation, Lord, may they just, in simple faith, cry out for forgiveness. Lord Jesus, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I know I've blown it. I know my life has headed the wrong direction. And I, if I died today, I don't know where I'd go. I, I fear I'd be in those flames. But Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. And I, and I confess them to you. I'm a, I'm a loser. But Lord, if you'll forgive me, I, I surrender all of my life to you today. Come into my heart. Give me the gift of eternal life. I'll follow you from this day forward for the rest of my life. Lord, I pray there's people that do that today. Most of us, Lord, know that we've done that before, but like Laodiceans, many people just, well, they live their lives for themselves. It's fun and games here and now. That's all it's about. They're not storing up anything for eternity. And they think they're getting away with it because, well, it's been good so far. And maybe today's the day that they understood it differently. Maybe today's the day that they realize, oh, man, the Lord will be back in like 15 minutes. I'm going to get that house straightened up real quick. Lord, it all starts with a decision. Repentance is to change our mind. And I pray that there would be people that would repent 
of their carnality today. That they would change their mind and stop living for themselves and start living in a way that actually matters. And whatever we give, whatever we do for you, whatever we suffer, it's nothing compared to what you've set for us. We do it willingly. We won't faint. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the brothers and sisters who have been demonstrating this kind of life for years. God, continue to bless and protect them. And I pray you'd be honored in the things that we offer to you in Jesus' name. Amen.